Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. October is known as the month of surprises in presidential elections, and this October had to wait barely its first full day for one to emerge. Overnight, it was revealed that President Trump and the First Lady tested positive for COVID-19, and we wish them both a speedy and uneventful recovery. What's not going to be eventful is the impact of the president's diagnosis on the race, both the logistics of conducting the campaign and the debates, as well as its impact on the race dynamics, messaging, and the response of voters. And so I'm very pleased to be joined today by the founding partners here at the firm, Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Castagnetti, to break all this down. Bruce, David, welcome to 14th and G. Thank you, Dean. Good morning. Thank God it's Friday. <laughs> Bruce, you recently released the firm's quarterly slide deck. It's now kind of a staple event for downtown DC. And the subject, unsurprisingly, was what to expect in the 2020 elections. And right there, slide number 11, the final two months of the presidential election, you say, are where the wild things are. You know, we often remark on how events feel compressed in this day and age. But it was only two weeks ago that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, creating a Supreme Court vacancy. One week since the New York Times released an expose on the president's taxes, and now a positive diagnosis of the president for COVID-19. I'm pleased to say that Vice President Pence and his wife have just tested negative, but where does this first October surprise leave us with the election just 32 days away? Well, you know, first and foremost, Dean, it leaves us, you don't even mention the fact that we had the first presidential debate, aka Reality TV, aka World Wrestling Federation, and that slipped slipped, uh, your mention there, uh, which just tells you how chaotic things are. Look, like everybody, uh, and starting with uh, Vice President Biden, to his credit, we all wish the president and the first lady well. You know, you certainly worry on the one hand, he's he's elderly, he's he is uh, overweight, at least according to the New York Times, he's low income, three categories that have led to, to more challenging health outcomes. At the same time, he will have the best health care, the best medical care. We've learned a lot over six months of treatment, as we've seen when President Bolsonaro or, or, uh, or Boris Johnson in the UK have had it. There's every reason to hope and believe that he'll be uh, he'll be fine. Uh, this This changes his ability to keep having these big events, let alone, you know, big, generally people not wearing masks events, is could, this could well create some, some sympathy and some appreciation, um, you know, showing him to be uh, more human. And, and uh, you saw with Boris Johnson when he was uh, going through this, he had a spike in, uh, in approval and popularity. But my own gut is the, uh, this just simply brings the discussion closer back to the question of COVID and that so many uh, hearts and minds are already made up that we're now uh, merely in the last couple of weeks, but what percent are undecided? 5%? Not a lot. Hey, Dean, if I can just jump in on that for a second. I mean, I think to to echo Bruce's point on the president and the first lady, hopefully everything is fine, and that's the most important part. But, but But I also think that the other piece of this, looking kind of down the road is who else may be infected and other people in the White House potentially. Obviously, we've seen senior staff with it. Uh, As Bruce mentioned, the the crazy debate, if we thought that debate could get any crazier, maybe it did. You know, there's a lot at stake here and there's a lot of elderly people 
that are part of this and a young person in terms of uh, the, the new nominee for the Supreme Court, uh, Mrs. Barrett. So it's, a, it's an interesting process that we still need to go through as people are diagnosed. I, I love that Castagetti says 50 is young. That's good. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to learn a lot about contact tracing here over the yes. next uh, few weeks. Well, uh, David, uh, Bruce uh, mentioned, and I did not forget about the first presidential debate. Who could forget about the first presidential debate this week? Uh, the most common description for it was train wreck. The president was in full bulldozer mode to the frustration of Biden and moderator Chris Wallace. For his part, though, look, Vice President Biden seemed every bit a man about to mark his 78th birthday next month. Did, David, did the president get the better of Joe Biden Tuesday night, or did he just reaffirm an impression of him as, as a bully? I think, I mean, I think two things, Dean, uh, come to my mind. One is it, it was very clear to me that the president also just came across as a bully. If you notice, to me, one of the, the interesting things about the debate was every time the president was speaking, he was either looking at Chris Wallace or the vice president. If you notice the way Biden was trying to communicate, he was looking direct to camera and trying to communicate right with voters and trying to feel their passion and empathy. And I think, to me, that was the, the, the place where they delineated uh, from themselves. I would also say is someone uh, in Bruce, this is why I think 50 is young, that was part of a, a 1988 presidential campaign where uh, then Governor Dukakis was asked by a CNN reporter, um, uh, you know, what would you do if, unfortunately- yeah, exactly. What would you do, unfortunately, if your wife was raped? And he, he answered that in a very monotone way, with, with no passion and no desire, where when you noticed when Joe Biden was defending his family, it would be very much the same way Bruce and I would defend our children to say, hey, look it, they're my kids. They're part of, they're part of who I am. And you know, they're trying to do the right thing too. So I think you saw a little bit of passion. I mean, clearly you can't run from the fact that he is uh, 78 years old, but uh, the other side of it is, I think he held his cool very much during the course of that debate. I know certainly from my perspective, there were a couple of times where I was gonna get up and punch the TV and I had to control myself. Well, look, we're gonna agree to disagree a little bit. Uh, I, I, I... I think Joe Biden didn't win that debate. I think Donald Trump lost that debate. Uh, I do think the Trump campaign's theory was show that Trump is strong and Biden is weak. And that was what was in his brain. But I think uh, you can overplay your hand and he overplayed it massively. If, if you think about all of the polling and everything we know, uh, the president's trying to claw back some of the suburban, especially women voters who defected from the GOP in the 2018 midterms. As a rule, suburban women voters I know don't like uh, got people who are jerks, don't like people who interrupt all the time, don't like people who make a mockery of the rules. And I think he missed an opportunity Donald Trump did. Also, while you know, you're right, uh, Vice President Biden did look old, he's, uh, for all of his decency, he's known as a frequently unscripted moment kind of guy. He called himself a uh, gaffe machine in years past. If you don't let your opponent even get a word in edgewise, you don't give them the opportunity to make a mistake. 
And so I think that was a mistake. The other thing the president did, which is not helpful to him, was on that Proud Boy question, which the White House has several times now attempted to walk back in incremental doses, finally on Hannity's program, uh, explicitly trying to walk it back. But the problem is the walk back was as pained and tortuous and painstaking as this one was. That just cements some, uh, some things that don't help the president build a, a, a winning majority, let alone a governing majority. The only thing I'd add on that, Bruce, though, in terms of kind of winning and losing, just to put in perspective, that during the hours of 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock, Joe Biden raised $3.8 million the night of the debate. He raised $10 million in less than 24 hours with 60,000 new contributors, right? So, so there was definitely a feel that we have to help Joe Biden and have to help him uh, cross the finish line here uh, as well. So I, I'll take that as a, as a victory. Yeah, that may be true. For me, it's uh, debates ultimately are about the final undecideds. I would be shocked if somebody went from somehow undecided all this time, four years in, to a donor. I suspect what you see in donations of the base reacting, you know, you wanted to punch the screen, other people punched the, uh, their checkbook and stroked something to Vice President Biden. Well, Bruce, you touched on it. I mean, with all this uncertainty, we try to look at what we know to understand the state of the race. And, and that's usually been the public polling, of which there is plenty, whether Real Clear Politics or 538. I mean, frankly, the, the, the state polling, the national polling, it all looks like a Biden blowout, but no one expects that to be the case on election day. I've really tried to answer this question for myself multiple times over the course of the last several months, because the state polling, at least in 2016, was not accurate. Uh, it missed Trump's support in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, his complete breach of the Democrats' blue wall uh, in 2016. Is polling, you go into this to a great extent in the deck, but is polling telling us anything of value about the state of the race right now? So Castagnetti and I have a long-running gun battle. His theory is the polling got it wrong, so you can't trust polling. My theory is uh, get the best data you can, try to fix the mistakes you might have made last time to correct assumptions, but it's better to run based on data than just to assume data is never right. The national polling, the average of the national polling in 16 said Hillary was going to win the popular vote by 3%. She won it by 2.9%. In some of the states, there was A, not a lot of polling, not enough, and B, mistaken presumptions about the state of the electorate, because even when you've polled everybody, you still have to build a model and an assumption of who's then going to show up and who's going to vote. Uh, and we're seeing what some call the reverse Tom Bradley effect, where you know, uh, college-educated people in polite company can't say they're going to support Donald Trump, even if they are, because they don't want to get the blowback that they might get. And so as a result, there seems to be from time to time, certain, and particularly among college-educated voters, greater support in online polls, where you don't actually have to tell a human what you think, versus phone polls. That said, this time, Dean, there are more polls in states like Wisconsin, far more scrutinized by more people. They, uh, they have many, but not all, have attempted to address what in the Trump era is clearly a higher degree of engagement by white college, white voters without a college education. Can we guarantee and take to the bank that they're right? Nope, we can't. But do you have any alternative other than just kind of going back to the old, uh, you know, what your gut tells you? No. So, I'm sticking with data. You can uh, stick with data. Every pollster that I talked to told me 2016 
Mrs. Clinton was going to be President Clinton, and it didn't happen. So clearly something was wrong, and based on the data, certain decisions were made for Mrs. Clinton not to go to Wisconsin, not to go to Michigan. So you have to trust some political instinct at certain times to make sure you're still doing your homework. You still, it's only as good as you interpret it, right? At, at the end of the day, and even Billy Bean can't win in Oakland every year. There's only certain years he can win by sticking to the data, and he's got, uh, evaluates his talent all the time. So, you know, Dean, I, I hope this time the polls are right, so I can say to Bruce, you're 100% right, the data's there. It showed that Joe Biden was gonna win Ohio. That would be great, but, you know, you still have to make political calls. There was a reason why after the debate, Joe Biden went on a train trip to Ohio and Pennsylvania, right? It's motivating folks to come out to vote. Well, as we look forward to the events that are going to impact the remainder of this race, 32 days to go, there are the, uh, <laughs> there are the known knowns, the known unknowns, the unknown unknowns. But I think two of the known knowns are one, the vice presidential debate coming up next Wednesday, which may take on additional importance given the president's diagnosis, and a Supreme Court hearing in the Judiciary Committee of the Senate, which is going to start October 12th. That hearing is scheduled to go four days, and it's going to tee up a Supreme Court vote on the Senate floor the week before the election. David, what are, what are going to be the impacts of, uh, of both those events, both the vice presidential debate we're looking forward to, uh, as well as the Supreme Court hearing and, and then the vote in the Senate? Yeah, so those are a couple of loaded questions there, Dean, right? So the, the, I think the, the most interesting thing is this will be Senator Harris's first opportunity on the national stage since she's been nominated, since her acceptance speech at the Democratic Convention. She will have a chance to kind of provide her vision and the Vice, Vice President Biden's vision for where they want to take America and how they want to help deal with the economy and, and deal with the pandemic. Those are, it's going to be a very big opportunity for her to set herself apart from Vice President Pence and to kind of be the deliverer and the messenger for the future of the Democratic Party. I think as, as, as we get to, to, to Mrs. Barrett, it, it, it's, it's gonna be interesting. And again, to go back to your original question uh, with COVID, it, it, hopefully she doesn't, but was she possibly infected by someone on the White House staff? Does that delay the vote? Because she's gonna have to stop making her rounds as well. You know, everything is kind of up in the air a little bit. But assuming that the election, uh, that the nomination of Mrs. Barrett moves forward and we have a vote before the election, I think both parties politically are ready for that. Some of the folks in the Senate will, especially probably in Colorado and Maine, those challengers will see an opportunity to, to motivate the Democratic base uh, at the time. And then this, on the, some of the other states, the Montana is the North Carolina's, that may be an opportunity for the Republicans to motivate their base as well. So I think that there's an interesting balance here that, that's going to take place and, you know, process will be process and the Republicans control it, that's for sure. I might uh, respond to those first. Uh, with respect to the vice presidential debate, 
in some ways, uh, Senator Harris has a different challenge. I mean, the bar was set really low because of the Trump campaign suggesting that Vice President uh, Biden you know, can't tie his shoes. There was a pretty low performance bar, and he cleared it easily. Uh, the vice president did. Here, there's an expectation. I mean, one of the re- uh, that, that Senator Harris is a great debater. One of the reasons that her forces were suggesting she should have been picked back when Team Biden was trying to decide who to put on the ticket was she's such a great debater. Um, and there is a uh, a low expectation vis-a-vis Vice President Pence because he's such a mild-mannered, you know, borderline inanimate object uh, reputation. When the reality is, he used to host a uh, radio show and. I think he's got more firepower than people give him credit for. And I think that uh, Senator Harris has a, a, a big task, which will be tough. So expectations may help Vice President Pence this time the way they helped Vice President Pence of Biden last time. With respect to the SCOTUS fight, it is crazy that we're going to be moving this thing a week before the election. You can make a case it helps both sides. It certainly gets the discussion away from COVID, which is good for the administration because they don't have a particularly good story on COVID that they can point to and say, you know, we're winning this war. It's, it's you know, feels like 1942, 1943. It's a slog. But I look at the exit polls on Supreme Court from 2016 to 2018. In 2016, 21% of voters said the Supreme Court appointments were the most important factor with Republican voters, and of that 21%, 56% went for Trump and only 41% went for Clinton. That tells me when there was a open slot that was waiting to be filled, Republican voters cared more about it. By contrast, in 2018, the importance of the debate over Kavanaugh's confirmation, the 48% of voters who said it was very important in the midterms, well, they broke 56% Democrats and only 43% Republicans. So once it had been filled with Judge Kavanaugh, it feels like it may have slipped a little bit for Republicans because the itch was scratched, where it elevated a bunch amongst the Democrats who felt like there was a great injustice done in the process. I know Republicans thought about that question. Tim Alberta, a bright, brilliant writer for Politico, wrote about this, that he thought maybe it'd be better for Trump to not fill it. We're going to find out the answer to the question. Is it better to have this victory and to feel good? And will that keep you motivated a week or two weeks later on election day? Or if you just got screwed, is that going to make you far more motivated than if you just got satisfied? Well, let's close it out on the known unknown, which is which all centers around the vote, both the process of the vote and how it's going to come out. You know, Speaker Pelosi sent an astonishing letter around to her caucus, uh, I believe it was on Sunday, and she was raising the alarm on the possibility of what is known as a contingent election in which the Electoral College cannot produce a winner and the election goes into the House. But in a contingent election, each state delegation within the House only gets one vote. So while Democrats control the House on a straight up numbers majority, Republicans actually control more delegations. They've got 26 to the Democrats, 22. Uh, Michigan is a plurality with Justin Amash as the independent, and Pennsylvania is tied. Bruce, you predicted a 269 tie in the Electoral College. Uh, A lot of questions about whether we're going to be counting mail-in ballots uh, well past Election Day. The Electoral College meets on January 6th. Are they going to be able to come to a definitive winner? God, we hope so. You know, it's uh, it, it's the last thing the country or the world needs is is chaos. Unfortunately, I fear election day chaos from the uh, challenges of voting in person amidst the pandemic, 
when we just don't know how many folks think they have somehow been deputized to go be their own poll watchers. I'm really worried about voter intimidation when I think what makes America great and democracy great is everybody who wants to vote gets the vote and their vote gets counted. We then have post-election just the actual counting. You know, and in the old days, if you didn't have electronic machines, maybe it took a little wise, wise, little time to count. But we're going to know the early vote. We're going to know the early processed mail votes. And we're going to know the election day votes. And we're going to be counting legitimate votes. You know, people who like President Trump who mailed his vote into uh, absentee to Florida, other people mail their absentees in as well. And there's going to be a lot of, of, of chaotic risk about whether or not the counting of legitimate voters who voted is proper, or as that counting narrows margins, whether, uh, as we've already seen from the president, there are going to be assertions that, you know, counting is corruption. I worry a lot about confidence in the process. If it gets to 269 to 269, which there are 64 possible combinations of, of uh, states voting that could lead to 269, 269, like you say, it goes to a house that it's not this Congress, which you point out is 26, effectively 23-1, but it's next Congress, which could well be 25-25. That could punt it over to the United States Senate, where right now it's 53-47, but we got to wait till after the next election. It sure feels like Dems are going to pick up something net, maybe not enough, but it's also very possible that that punts it to a uh, 50-50 United States Senate, which is why the piece we put out, Dean, at the start of this year, suggesting that for whatever reason, we thought 2020 was going to be filled with black swans and un- unanticipated events. We actually said it will go 269-269, followed by 25-25, followed by 50-50, followed by Nancy Pelosi becoming president of the United States. I really don't think the odds are high of that scenario, um, but, uh, but if 2020 has taught us anything, buckle up, you're in for a wild ride. And Bruce, you get you kick it to the next Senate where you could have two Georgia Senate seats that have gone to a runoff in January. So you kick it to a Senate that may still be undetermined. I think it's January 5th, 2021 is election is the runoff election day in Georgia. So it really does uh, prolong it. The one thing I'd say, Dean, on, on Mrs. Pelosi, though, Speaker Pelosi, is, you know, she's a person who's always prepared. And she is using this as a rallying cry to raise more money for her challengers in those states that you mentioned, especially in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania, because she knows that she has to be ready in case this does end up in a 269-269 tie. And also, by the way, it also helps her expand her margins moving into the next Congress when Joe Biden is president. So it gives her a little more wiggle room as well in the legislating part. But, but all I'm saying is this, there's two reasons to do it, right? One is to be prepared in case it is 269, 269. The other side of it is it also helps her expand her margins a little bit in terms of raw votes within the, uh, within the House. So, it, you know, it, it's, it's a very smart, wise move by her. Well, we'll have to leave the unknown unknowns to the vagaries of divine providence. And <laughs> when they happen, we'll come back and break them down. Bruce Melman, David Castagnetti, thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Thank you, Dean. Thanks, Dean.